Well, it's my pleasure this afternoon to introduce David Lehman, who is going to deliver for us the Virginia Bell Ball Lecture in Contemporary Poetry for 2009, just as it's been a pleasure to get to know uh, David over the last couple of days. David grew up in Manhattan, the son of European refugees from the Holocaust. He attended Columbia University, where he began publishing poetry as an undergraduate in such journals as the Paris Review. He won a fellowship to Cambridge University, and then returned to New York to take his PhD at Columbia, where he worked as a research assistant to Lionel Trillin. After teaching at Hamilton and Cornell, David spent seven years as a culture reporter for Newsweek magazine. He currently teaches in the graduate writing program of the New School in New York, uh, and has done so since the program's beginning in 1996. Uh, he, he also serves as the poetry coordinator for the program. David is a writer of an extraordinary number of abilities. He's a poet, a critic, an editor, a reviewer, an anthologist, to name only a few of the genres in which he writes. And in each one of these genres, his work is extremely diverse. I first became aware of David's criticism as a graduate student, as I was working on deconstruction. His book, Signs of the Times, Deconstruction and the Fall of Paul de Man, provided scholars with a detailed account of the cultural context of deconstruction in America as it permeated out of university literature departments and into society at large. David used Suzanne Langer's concept of the key idea to describe deconstruction, and he proved this case cogently with one of the qualities for which I value his criticism most, his thick description of a cultural milieu. And he has all kinds of interesting things to say about the Paul de Man affair and does scholars the rather grim service of reprinting um, one of Paul de Man's truly scandalous wartime uh, uh, articles. One of David's greatest gifts as a critic is his unfailing sense that culture takes place in community. His most recent critical book, The Last Avant-Garde, The Making of the New York School of Poets, is a study of the cultural background which made the work of Ashbury, O'Hara, Koch, and Shuler possible. David shows, through rich and detailed description, that Ashbury, despite his unique brilliance, is not adequately understood outside the cultural context of the New York School in which he lived and wrote. And David has, recently, has been telling us about his recent completion of a study of American popular songs from 1915 through 1965, entitled A Fine Romance, Jewish Songwriters, American Songs, which all of us who've read his work await with anticipation for a similarly rich account of the community in which Gershwin, Cole Porter, Irving Berlin and their contemporaries wrote and were enjoyed. Perhaps, however, David's most widely appreciated service to American poetry has been his founding and editorship of the series The Best American Poetry which has been published annually since 1988. Anyone who's at Baylor, our library has every single volume, go look at them. Uh, each year, an eminent guest editor, in consultation with David, uh, chooses 75 of the best poems to have been published that year in poetry magazines of all kinds, from, as David himself once put it, flamboyant gadflies like exquisite corpse to classy, classy campus quarterlies like the Gettysburg Review. David once described the best American poetry as a wager on the question of poetry's audience. Everyone complains that poetry doesn't have one, he wrote. We bet the opposite. And he bet right. For the 21 years it's been in existence, the best American poetry has been the single most accessible, representative, and popular window for scholars and readers of poetry onto the latest work of America's best poets. I could go on and on, but I won't. I'll finish with a word about David's own poetry. His seventh volume of poems, Yeshiva Boys, is being published this year. His most recent volume, When a Woman Loves a Man, which is published in 2005, is as diverse as his criticism. 
David is a humane writer. He believes in and writes about the value of the human spirit, and did so throughout the decades in which such thinking was unfashionable and unpopular. Despite his misgivings about the culture of postmodernism, David remains an altogether happy writer, in the sense that Virginia Woolf described Jane Austen as a happy writer, and in the sense that Nietzsche described his work as Froelich, or gay science. I could mention the excruciatingly beautiful title poem of When a Woman Loves a Man. I could mention the simply profound Ode to Buddhism. I could mention the delightful meetings of David's speakers with Wittgenstein or with Freud. But I'll finish introducing David on this happy note by reading a villanelle entitled Whiston Hugh Auden, every line of which is an anagram of the words Whiston Hugh Auden. Why shun a nude tag? Why stun a huge hand? Hug a shady wet nun. Why stand a huge hun? Why gash a dune nut? Why shun a nude tag? Guy hands you new hat. Ha, the Sunday gun. Hug a shady wet nun. Why aghast, unnude? Why agash, untuned? Why shun a nude tag? Ash and guy, done what? Why? Nag a shut nude. Hug a shady wet nun. Why daunt a snug he? Why done a gaunt she? Why shun a nude tag? Hug a shady wet nun. Ladies and gentlemen, David Lehman. Thank you very much, Luke, for that wonderful introduction. Uh, I know we've had a lot of trouble with the sound system, so I'm, I'm hoping that, uh, that it's all audible and clear now. That was a, a, a grand introduction, and uh, it's an honor to be giving you the Virginia Bell Ball uh, lecture. And, uh, and it's also a, a pleasure to be sharing the platform with Donald Hall and Peter Fallon and C.D. Wright. What is a poet? In his defense of poetry, Shelley writes, a poet is a nightingale who, who sits in darkness and sings to cheer its own solitude with sweet sounds. His auditors are as men entranced by the melody of an unseen musician who feel that they are moved and softened, yet know not whence or why. The solitude and sweet darkness, the emphasis on the unseen, the nightingale as the image of the poet, the listeners entranced but bewildered, how romantic this formulation is, and how well it fits its author. Matthew Arnold alters the metaphor, but retains something of its tone when he calls Shelley, quote, a beautiful and ineffectual angel beating in the void his luminous wings in vain. Kierkegaard, in either or, goes further than either Shelley or Arnold in accentuating the negative. In a passage I've long admired, Kierkegaard identifies the poet as one whose heart is full of anguish, but whose lips transform all sighs and groans into beautiful music. Kierkegaard likens the fate of this unhappy individual to the cruel and unusual punishment meted out by the tyrant Phalaris 
whose unfortunate victims, slowly roasted by a gentle fire in a huge copper bull, let out shrieks that turn into sweet melodies by the time they reach the tyrant's ears. The success of the poet, then, corresponds to the amount of agony endured. Readers clamor for more, for they are aware only of the music and not of the suffering that went into it. The critics, too, stand ready to applaud. If, that is, the poet's work meets the requirements of the immutable laws of aesthetics. And it is here that Kierkegaard's parable acquires an extra layer of irony, the better to convey his contempt for critics. Why, to be sure, he writes, a critic resembles a poet as one pea another, the only difference being that he has no anguish in his heart and no music on his lips. And therefore, Kierkegaard concludes with a flourish, sooner would I be a swineherd understood by the swine than a poet misunderstood by men. I offer this paragraph as an exemplary prose poem, though not labeled as such by the melancholic Dane who composed it, because of its brilliant rhetoric of metaphor and metamorphosis. The argument proceeds by the logic of its similes, the sweet music, the barbaric torture, the prosaic peas in the pod, the swineherd as an honorable profession, and the abrupt tonal shift at the end from sarcasm to defiance. If, as Wallace Stevens asserted, poetry is almost incredibly one of the effects of analogy, here is a gorgeous example. It has the virtue, moreover, of raising questions about the occupational hazards that poets face and about their relation to a world of readers. And every reader is a critic. In one way, at least, Kierkegaard's parable is untrue to the experience of American poets who rarely have to fend off legions of admirers clamoring for more. But the notion that the job of the critic is to find fault with the poetry, that the aims of criticism and of poetry are opposed, is still with us, or rather, has returned with a vengeance. I refer to the phenomenon of contemporary commentators intent on punishing the authors they review. It was once erroneously thought that devastating reviews caused John Keats's untimely death in his 26th year. Lord Byron in Don Juan had Keats and his critics in mind when he wrote, quote, "'Tis strange the mind that very fiery particle should let itself be snuffed out by an article." In reality, it was not criticism, but consumption that terminated Keats's young life. And many of us came of age seeking 
reading not only the poetry of T.S. Eliot and W.H. Auden, but their essays in criticism as well. Nor were they the only poets who demonstrated a continuity between the two forms of discourse. The great value of their critical writing is that rather than enforce the immutable laws of aesthetics, they engage with literary works and thereby enrich our understanding and enjoyment of them. The romantic image of the poet as a vulnerable personage in a hostile universe has not gone out of currency. The poet is doomed to go unrecognized and to pay dearly for his music-making powers. The gift of poetry comes not as an unalloyed blessing, but as the incidental virtue of a defect, or as compensation for a loss, an injury, an ailment, a deficiency. Edmund Wilson coined the phrase that readily comes to mind for this dynamic of compensatory balance, the wound and the bow. Before it served Wilson as the title of a collection of essays, the phrase headed his study of the myth of Philoctetes, which the critic took as paradigmatic of the artist's situation. Aeschylus, Euripides, and Sophocles all treated the myth in plays. The Philoctetes of Sophocles survives. The hero who excels even Odysseus at archery possesses the invincible bow that once belonged to Hercules. Philoctetes joins the Greeks in their assault on Troy, but is bitten by a poisonous snake, and the suppurating wound emits so foul an odor that his comrades in arms abandon him on the island of Lemnos. There he is stranded for ten miserable years. But when a Trojan prophet is forced to reveal that the Greeks will fail to conquer Troy without the unerring bow of Philoctetes, a platoon is dispatched to re-enlist the archer, who is understandably reluctant to return to the fray, and to recover his arms by any means necessary. In Sophocles, Philoctetes is cured at Troy. He goes on to kill Paris, the Trojan prince whose abduction of Helen precipitated the epic conflict, and he becomes one of the heroes of the Greek victory. One lesson, according to Edmund Wilson, is that genius and disease, like strength and mutilation, may be inextricably bound up together. In the most speculative and provocative sentence in the essay, Wilson ventures that, quote, somewhere, even in the fortunate Sophocles, there had been a sick and raving Philoctetes. W.H. Auden's early prose poem, Letter to a Wound, from 1931, is a powerful modern statement of the theme. Quote, you are so quiet these days that I get quite nervous. Remove the dressing. I am safe. You are still there. Addressing the wound as you is not merely a grammatical convenience, but the vehicle of a linguistic transformation. 
The ailment becomes an active, willful muse and companion, albeit one whose traits include insane jealousy, bad manners, and a passion for spoiling things. The letter writer has learned to live with his incurable condition as with a secret partner, an illicit lover. They have even gone through a honeymoon stage together. Thanks to you, Auden writes, I have come to see a profound significance in relations I never dreamed of considering before, an old lady's affection for a small boy, the waterhouses and their retriever, the curious bond between Ophel and Snig, the partners in the hardware shop in the front. The wound is not named, though we read of a visit to a surgeon who begins a sentence, I'm afraid, and need not add a word. The particular virtue of this epistolary prose poem is that I and you, a pair of pronouns, are raised to the level of a universal duality and are therefore greater than any specific duality that seems appropriate, whether artist and wound, or self and soul, or ego and id, or lover and beloved. It is difficult not to fall under the spell of Wilson's wound and bow, or of the corresponding myth in the Hebraic tradition. In the 22nd chapter of Genesis, Jacob, who twice in the past had got the better of his brother Esau, both times by cunning or deceit, must wrestle with a man who will not reveal his name and who must flee the scene at daybreak. The struggle takes place on the eve of Jacob's first encounter with Esau after many years in the deep darkness of the night, and it is physical combat of a kind not associated with Jacob. When he fights the angel to a standstill, he receives a blessing and a new name, Israel, because he has, quote, contended with God and men and has prevailed. But he has also suffered a wound in the hollow of his thigh that causes him to limp thereafter. The story is rich and mysterious in inverse proportion to its length, nine biblical verses. The Hebrew blessing bestowed on Jacob is utterly different from the Greek bow, though each is said to be a source of power. Yet at bottom, we find the familiar dialectic of compensation. Such myths may console us. The logic of Emerson's essay, Compensation, has saved my spirits on many a dismal afternoon. The sure years reveal the deep emotional force that underlies all facts, Emerson writes. The death of a dear friend, wife, brother, lover, which seemed nothing but privation, somewhat later assumes the aspect of a guide or genius, for it commonly operates revolutions in our way of life, terminates an epoch of infancy or of youth which was waiting to be closed, breaks up a wanted occupation or a household or style of living, and allows the formation of new ones more friendly to the growth of character. 
It is to Emerson's essay that I turn when I need to tamp down the impulses of resentment or envy and reconcile myself to realities. There is wisdom here and truth, a counter-argument, if not exactly a solution, to the problem of evil that Gerard Manley Hopkins stated summarily. Why do sinners' ways prosper, and why must disappointment all my endeavors end? There is also, however, a danger in the intimate association of genius and illness, especially mental illness, especially at a time when many of us engaged in the discourse of poetry come into contact with ever-increasing numbers of impressionable young people who want to study creative writing. We need to resist the temptation to identify poetry narrowly with sorrow, agony, and pain, for it overlooks the poetry written out of joy, a celebration of freedom, the impulse to praise. The romantic conception of the poet can lead too easily to self-pity, or worse, the glorification of madness and the idealization of the self-inflicted wound. In a famous letter, the French symbolist poet Arthur Rimbaud recommended a voluntary derangement of the senses as a necessary program for the poet who would be a seer. Readers enthralled by Le Bateau Ivre or Voyelle, the sonnet in which Rimbaud assigns colors to each of the vowels, have made much of this statement, overlooking the fact that the author of these brilliant poems was a teenage prodigy and not a mentor to approach for practical advice. The shrine of the beautiful and sublime is located elsewhere than the palace of wisdom to which the road of excess may eventually lead. Lionel Trilling's essay, Art and Neurosis, is a vital corrective to the tendency to assent too readily to propositions obscuring the differences between genius and madness. Trilling accepts the premise that all of us, including the fortunate Sophocles, are ill. We are all neurotic. In that case, it is not the primal hurt, but the ability to rise above it that distinguishes the artist. Poetry is not a matter of divine madness, but the product of labor and conscious mind and effort. Nothing is so characteristic of the artist as his power of shaping his work, of subjugating his raw material, however aberrant it be, from what we call normality, Trilling writes. What marks the artist is the power to shape the material of pain we all have. My favorite sentence in Kierkegaard's parable is the one in which poets and critics are considered identical, except that the latter lack the very qualities, the anguish in the heart and the music on the lips that are definitive of the poet. For many years, I resisted Kierkegaard's either-or logic. I felt that there needn't be a structural enmity between poetry and criticism. Now I wonder. 
21 years ago, when the Best American Poetry series was just getting off the ground, an eminent scholar asked whether I fancied myself a critic or an editor first and foremost. I replied that I am a poet before I am anything else and that my activities as a writer, a teacher, an editor emanate from that core identity. But it was a fair question. I had written a doctoral thesis on the prose poem and individual essays on Ammons, Ashbery, Auden, Bishop, Merrill, Stevens, others. After, after deciding to quit academe, I reviewed books for Newsweek and other mass circulation magazines. I had edited several collections and was working on a study of murder mysteries and movies. Despite the expectations of failure that plague any new venture in the literary arts, the demand for the Best American Poetry 1988, the series inaugural volume, quickly outstripped supply, and the publisher had to keep going back to press for new printings. John Ashbery was the guest editor for 1988. The 1989 volume, with Donald Hall as editor, proved equally popular. In those early days, I would shamelessly urge bookstore managers, when I went into a bookstore, to order the book. On a September day in 1990, I walked into Books and Company, the late lamented bookshop that used to exist a few feet from the Whitney Museum in New York City. I asked the clerk at the front desk whether the 1990 volume, edited by Jory Graham, had arrived. It won't be published until next April, the clerk confidently replied, as I had already received my own copies and had seen the book in other stores and knew that the book's pub date was September, I felt sure of my ground. I said, why don't you look it up in books in print? He did, and began to read aloud the information there. When he got to my name, he paused triumphantly. David Lehman, he, explained, he exclaimed, David Lehman comes here all the time. Then he repeated that the new volume will be published next April. That's when I knew that we had a hit on our hands. <laughs> the series' success helped prove that a readership for poetry exists and that it remains possible to enlarge that readership by creating a more efficient means of reaching it. I continue to believe that the publication of poetry, and for that matter, the fashioning of a literary career, requires acts of imagination as complex and intense as that which go into the making of books. The internet has multiplied the number of places in which a poem may appear. If it was difficult previously to cover the poetry waterfront, even with a team of skillful readers, it is now quite impossible. Websites, zines, and blogs have made it possible to close up the lag between the composition and dissemination of any piece of writing. It remains to be seen how this technological advance will affect the nature of the writing itself, although the odds are that it will abet not only the tendency toward informality, but also the impulse to buck it by emphasizing new and unusual forms, 
the abecedarius, or double abecedarius, in which every line begins with uh, the letter of the alphabet, there are 26 lines, and the double abecedarius, um, the last letters of all the lines go from Z to A. Um, the lipogram, which is uh, a piece of writing that omits one letter. For example, the letter E. It would be very hard to write a novel without the letter E. The use of found forms, such as the index, the index of first lines in the back of a book of poems. All of these forms have turned up in recent volumes of the best American poetry, as have, to be sure, sonnets, sestinas, riddles, prose poems, a villanelle, a cento, a blues, a pantoum. The rediscovery of old forms and the fabrication of new ones is one notable tendency in contemporary American poetry. A second is the growing appeal of the conversational style that the poet David Kirby calls ultra-talk, a poem that sounds as natural as talk, if we could script our talk. After observing that every revolution in poetry is at base a return to common speech, T.S. Eliot in his essay, The Music of Poetry, goes on to give the rationale for this sort of talk poetry. Quote, no poetry, of course, is ever exactly the same speech that the poet talks and hears, but it has to be in such a relation to the speech of his time that the listener or reader can say, that is how I should talk if I could talk poetry. If I were asked today, I would unhesitatingly opt to be labeled an editor rather than a critic, not only because it is truer to my experience, but because I feel I can accomplish certain functions of criticism in the course of my editorial practice. When I put together the Oxford Book of American Poetry in 2006, I wanted not simply to update previous editions of this anthology, F. O. Matheson's in 1950 and Richard Ellman's in 1976. Like Donald Hall, I distrust the star system when applied to poetry. The glib notion that at any time there are only five or six major poets. The use of the word major is certainly justified in the case of Whitman or Dickinson, Stevens or Crane, Bishop or Auden, but too often the terminology is intended to consign to permanent obscurity a great many minor poets of substance and worth. Rather than treat the canon as something forever fixed, I believe it makes better sense to allow the readers of a new generation the chance to read and to decide for themselves the merits of Emma Lazarus, James Weldon Johnson, Edna St. Vincent Millay, Samuel Greenberg, Dorothy Parker, Phelps Putnam, Charles Reznikov, Jean Toomer, Louise Bogan, John Wheelwright, Kenneth Fearing, Josephine Miles, May Swenson, Charles Bukowski, James Schuyler, and Kenneth Koch, to name just some of the poets who had been eligible but were omitted from the 1976 edition. And all 78 poets were included 
1976, there are 210 poets in the new edition of the Oxford Book of American Poetry. Uh, can, can you hear me? I mean, if you can't, it's wait, waiting a long time to, you know. <laughs> As an editor, you act on critical observations and implement them in motions of inclusion and explanation. If you feel, as I do, that the prose poem, after flurries of interest in earlier decades, has finally caught on in a significant way, you put together a book eubristically called Great American Prose Poems, From Poe to the Present. If your monitoring of American literary magazines tells you that some of the most interesting and original work that young poets are doing today deals with erotic subject matter, you might conduct a further investigation to discern the wild nights in America's Puritan past, and a book entitled The Best American Erotic Poems may be conceived. These are critical acts, though they aim to praise rather than to punish. This cannot be said of the criticism that makes the loudest noise these days. The primary badness of literary criticism in the 1980s was that it was so heavily driven by theory and saddled with such an unlovely vocabulary. T.S. Eliot, in The Function of Criticism, back in 1923, says he presumes that no exponent of criticism has ever made the preposterous assumption that criticism is an autotelic activity, meaning an activity to be undertaken as an end in itself without connection to a work of literature. Eliot did not figure on the phenomenon of post-structuralism or the critic's declaration of independence from the text. If you wanted criticism constantly to be confronted with examples of poetry, as R.P. Blackmer says in A Critic's Job of Work, you were in for a bad time in the 1980s. The academic critic's disregard of contemporary poetry paralleled the rise of creative writing as a field of study, and partly in consequence, the writing of poetry did not suffer, though from time to time you would hear the tired refrain that poetry, like God, the novel as a form, and the author altogether had died. Donald Hall composed the definitive response to these premature death notices. Death to the Death of Poetry served as the introduction to the best American poetry 1989 and has since been republished, most recently in, in Czech translation. Hall refutes some of the assumptions that bedevil poetry, starting with the notion that nobody reads it. No fewer than 12 of the guest editors of the Best American Poetry series have taken part in the Bell poetry festivals since the first festival 15 years ago. And I think that simply to list their names, Mark Strand, Charles Simic, Louise Glick, Adrienne Rich, Robert Bly, Robert Haas, Yusef Komunyaka, Paul Muldoon, Billy Collins, Heather McHugh, Charles Wright, and Hall himself, goes pretty far to support Hall's confident assertion made in 1989 and valid today that American poetry survives, it even prevails. Back in the 1970s, 
Donald Hall had recognized the void in criticism and had come up with an imaginative editorial response. He created the Poets on Poetry series for the University of Michigan Press, an ambitious project committed to the belief that we must turn to the poets themselves for guidance. For the better part of two decades, Don proceeded to publish books by Galway Cannell, William Stafford, Robert Bly, Anne Sexton, Amy Clampett, Robert Creeley, among many others. I believe that everyone with an interest in American poetry owes Don a debt, and I know I do more than most, for in 1994, he asked me to take over as the series general editor. The honor conferred a responsibility, and for the next 12 years, I worked to extend and sustain Don's vision. Books appeared by John Ashbery, Thomas Dish, Dana Joya, Linda Gregerson, Kenneth Coe, Carol Muskie, Alice Notley, Mae Swenson, and James Tate, among others. I'm proud of what Don and I accomplished, separately and together, in making available the prose of some of our leading poets. Some of these volumes contain criticism in the familiar sense, but many of them offer something less conventional, enthusiasms, ruminations on craft, notebook entries, autobiographical sketches, jazz commentary, notes on food, art, and movies, and in one case, an entire commonplace book. The problem of criticism in the limited sense of writing that aims to illuminate, characterize, and evaluate specific texts and authors persists. Today, its characteristic badness is that it is mean in spirit and spiteful in intent, as if determined to inflict the wound that will spur the artist to new heights if it does not cripple him or her. Somewhere along the line, the notion took hold that poets were reluctant to write honestly about their peers. But in the absence of disinterested critics who are not themselves poets, surely the antidote is not to encourage the habit of rejection without explanation, denunciation without a reasoned argument, and a slam of the gavel in high dudgeon as if a poem were a felony, when in fact, as Kenneth Koch wittily observed, poetry, even bad poetry, is aesthetically harmless and psychodegradable. Hostile criticism, criticism by insult, may have entertainment value, but the fact of animus does not by itself guarantee honesty. As one who knows from first-hand experience what a book reviewer faces when writing on deadline, I think I can tell the real thing when I see it. And the hysterical over-the-top attack is as often as not the product of a pose. Every critic knows it is easier and more fun to write a ruthless review rather than a measured and discerning one. As a reviewer, you're not human if you don't give vent to your outrage once or twice, if only to get the impulse out of you. If you have too good a time writing hostile reviews, you'll injure not only your sensibility, but your soul. Frank O'Hara felt he had no responsibility to respond to a bad poem. It'll slip into oblivion without my help, he would say. In poetry criticism of the hostile kind, 
The most notorious repeat offender is undoubtedly William Logan. Logan is the critic as Frank O'Hara defined the species, the assassin of my orchards. He has attacked viciously just about everyone he has reviewed, myself included. You can rely on him to go for the most wounding gesture. Michael Palmer writes a Baudelaire series of poems, for example, and Logan comments, Baudelaire would have eaten Mr. Palmer for breakfast with salt. The Australian poet Les Murray's work seems, quote, badly translated out of old church Slavonic with only a Russian phrase book at hand. Reviewing a book by Adrian Rich is a task Logan feels he could, quote, almost undertake in his sleep. Reading C.K. Williams is, quote, like watching a dog eating its own vomit. For many years, Logan reserved his barbs for the poets of our time. More recently, he has sneered at Emily Dickinson, calling her a bloodless recluse, condescended to Emerson, calling him a mediocre poet. You really have to love your own poetry a great deal to call Emerson a mediocre poet. Patronized Hart Crane as the author of, quote, gassy romantic rhetoric, and called Frank O'Hara's death a good career move, to cite a few pronouncements. The jibe at O'Hara, which led off Logan's review of a new edition of O'Hara's selected poems last summer, was not a particularly original turn of phrase, but in O'Hara's case it is doubly unkind, giving the false impression that he died by his own hand. He did not. This brand of insult criticism has its precedence. Logan self-consciously aspires to be the Randall Jurell of our days. But while it is true that Jurell wrote masterly put-downs, what imitators forget is that Jurell's most valuable work is his appreciative writing on Whitman, Stevens, Frost, Williams, Moore, Bishop. He helped to teach us how to read these poets and which of their poems show their skills off to greatest advantage. In these essays and in such general reflections as The Age of Criticism, you find the validation of the stinging poisoned sword witticisms, by which I mean only that Jurel loved poetry so much and so genuinely that you never begrudge him the occasional dagger thrust. William Logan's treatment of Langdon Hammer's Library of America edition of Hart Crane's Poetry and Prose, the review ran in the New York Times Book Review in January 2007, provoked the general feeling that here he had gone too far. The piece dwelled on Crane's, quote, sexual appetites, which, quote, were voracious and involved far too many sailors. And the review included an astoundingly flipped dismissal of Crane's poem, Chaplinesque. Logan called it a dreadful mess. The review triggered off a spate of letters that the Times duly printed. Rosanna Warren summed up what many readers felt. She wrote, snide biographical snippets about homosexuality and alcoholism are not literary criticism, nor are poems illuminated by sarcastic bum mo. Crane's revelatory weaknesses as well as his genius deserved a more responsible accounting, end quote. Wounded 
by the outcry, Logan wrote a lengthy defense of himself and his procedures in the October 2008 issue of Poetry Magazine. More letters to the editor followed, three pages of them in the December 2008 issue, along with a concluding comment by Logan longer than the combined efforts of his correspondence. For one who routinely seeks to give offense, Logan turns out to be thin-skinned. In the end, he falls back on the argument that it is fruitless to argue in matters of taste. Quote, the problem with taste is yours is right and everyone else's is wrong, he writes. A more troubling problem, it seems to me, is that in his mind, taste and bias are the same. His schadenfreude may entertain, but he is rarely persuasive. Using the romantic poets as an example, he writes, and I quote, you can't stand that ditherer Coleridge. She can't stand that whiner Keats. I can't stand that dry fuss budget Wordsworth, and we all hate Shelley, end quote. Only someone for whom poets are merely names, abstractions that never had a flesh and blood existence, could so gleefully reduce these poets to those epithets. But when Logan returns to Chaplinesque, Hart Crane's, quote, hapless little poem, and how that unnecessary little rankles, he gives the game away. Perhaps I had better read Hart Crane's poem aloud, since Logan makes it the test case by which to judge his critical practice. This is the poem Chaplinesque of Hart Crane. We make our meek adjustments, contented with such random consolations as the wind deposits in slithered and too ample pockets, for we can still love the world who find a famished kitten on the step and no recesses for it from the fury of the street or warm, torn elbow coverts. We will sidestep and to the final smirk dally the doom of that inevitable thumb that slowly chafes its puckered index toward us, facing the dull squint with what innocence and what surprise. And yet, these fine collapses are not lies, more than the pirouettes of any pliant cane. Our obsequies are, in a way, no enterprise. We can evade you and all else but the heart. What blame to us if the heart live on? The game enforces smirks, but we have seen the moon in lonely alleys make a grail of laughter of an empty ash can, and through all sound of gaiety and quest have heard a kitten in the wilderness. To Logan, the poem's concluding lines are self-evidently, quote, embarrassing, end quote, an adjective he uses twice without substantiation. In the three separate pieces in which he brings up the poem, he merely repeats the same charges, uses the same modifiers. The penultimate stanza of Chaplinesque is, he says, hapless and tone deaf. The ending is, he says, schmaltz. And the poem as a whole is evidence that the poet was, quote, starstruck by Charlie Chaplin, whose movies inspired Crane. Everyone is entitled to an opinion. 
But a professional critic has the responsibility to develop opinions, not just to state them. Rather than make the effort to see how Crane's poem works as a response to Charles Chaplin's film, The Kid, Logan ridicules the poet who was starstruck and compares Chaplin then with Angelina Jolie now, a comparison of dubious value that manages to insult everyone, including Chaplin, Crane, Angelina Jolie, and the 77 American poets who, Logan says in his patented blend of self-regard and snarky wit, have written odes to Jolie because Logan wrote that Crane met Chaplin after writing Chaplin-esque. I do not claim to comprehend Chaplin-esque perfectly, but I believe that the lover of poetry will recognize the genius in this poem before any irritable reaching after paraphrase. Crane's repeated use of the homonym for his first name, we can evade you and all else but the heart, what blame to us if the heart live on, seems to me, for example, well worth pondering. The poem's opening stanzas are so rich, one wants to say them over and over, to speculate on the idea of the chaplain persona as an image of the poet, of the famished kitten as an image of poetry, or to contemplate the remarkable sequence of smirk, thumb, and squint in the third stanza. The finger-in-the-eye slapstick comedy routine has never seemed so threatening, even if we can dally the doom of that inevitable thumb that slowly chafes its puckered index toward us. The poem's ending is particularly memorable. You may not make easy sense of that grail of laughter created by the moon out of a garbage can in a deserted alley. But this arresting image that fuses the sacred and the profane, sky and slum, will not soon depart from your consciousness. The key phrase here, a grail of laughter, is a great example of a poetic image that defies logical analysis, for we instinctively grasp it as a figure of the sublime, though we know that a grail cannot be of laughter in any conventional sense. The laughter is the sound of gaiety and quest, and we can see the miracle, behold the grail, because we have heard the cry of the alley cat, and we know that poetry is not simply a grand visionary quest, but also something very precious and vulnerable, a kitten in the wilderness. The critic whose reading of Chaplinesque I'd like to see is Christopher Ricks. Ricks begins his book, T.S. Eliot and Prejudice, with a reading of the most audacious poetic debut of the 20th century. You might have thought that the love song of J. Alfred Prufrock would require the critic to digress from a consideration of prejudice, the focal point of his study of Eliot. Not so. Ricks quotes the uncanny stand-alone couplet that Eliot uses twice. In the room, the women come and go, talking of Michelangelo. What have scholars said about the lines? The Oxford Don Helen Gardner hears, quote, high-pitched feminine voices that are absurdly inadequate to the giant art of Michelangelo. 
Grover Smith says he has no doubt the women are talking tediously and ignorantly. To you, Kenner, the women are trivial. John Crow Ransom, discerning contempt in Eliot's voice, rephrases the couplet as a rhetorical question about the women. How could they have had any inkling of that glory which Michelangelo had put into his marbles and his paintings? Yet, as Ricks observes, nowhere does Eliot tell us how to react to these women entering and leaving the drawing room. He chooses talking to describe what they are doing when he could as easily have said prattling. He uses no adjective to denigrate the women, though at his disposal he had those I've already given, trivial, ignorant, tedious, and others, shallow, affected, fashionable. Nor does Eliot praise the glory of Michelangelo's giant art by way of emphasizing the discrepancy between the women and the object of their conversation. It is a measure of Eliot's subtlety and skill that he disdains such modifiers as would bully a reader into the desired response. But Rix's larger point is that the critics are unaware of how much their sense of the lines is incited by prejudice. It is they who have adduced a palpable dossier from an impalpable smell. They who pass judgment on the women passing through as though they were writing about a recriminatory novel rather than an 11-word couplet. In the room, the women come and go, talking of Michelangelo. Rix's treatment of Eliot illustrates how canny a close reader he is. It may remind us also of the pleasure to be had from such acts of critical acumen. And if, as Wordsworth insisted in the preface to the lyrical ballads, the giving of pleasure constitutes the poet's first obligation to the reader, may it not be reasonable to expect the critic of poetry to honor this same imperative. Yet, what Wordsworth calls the grand elementary principle of pleasure is missing in discussions of contemporary poetry, as is the ability to read a passage of poetry on its own terms, paying it the respect of careful attention, leaving aside prejudice, be it the prejudice of an ideology, a received opinion, a personal bias, or a determination to find fault and use the occasion of a review as an opportunistic moment to show how clever you are at the expense of the author. I want to conclude by giving you a preview of what you will find in the Best American Poetry 2009, edited by David Wagoner. I would like to read two poems, if you'll indulge me. Uh, the first is called Like a Monkey by Mitch Siskind. I think it's a remarkable poem in a voice utterly original. Like a Monkey. Our sages tell us Rachel was a beautiful woman. Light brown hair, brown eyes, five feet six or seven. Not a clothes horse, but always looked great whether getting ready for work in white cashmere sweater pleated navy skirt or in the bleachers at a Cubs game, in cutoffs and t-shirt. Yet, besides Sarah, our sages tell us, Rachel was like a monkey. Rachel was like a monkey besides Sarah. For our sages tell us, Sarah was a beautiful woman. And most of all, she loved to dance. 
People try to move too much, she said, diamonds and rust on the stereo. Really, you don't even need to move your feet. You don't even need to move at all, or just a little, really. Yet, beside Eve, our sages tell us Sarah was like a monkey. Sarah was like a monkey beside Eve. For our sages tell us Eve was a beautiful woman. She dyed her hair to a metallic purple sheen, wore matching purple eyeshadow and silver jewelry. Goth look, but she made it work. Teardrop tattoo by left eye, so small you might not even notice. And to the surprise of many, she majored in cosmology. Physics journals on the floor in her bathroom by the toilet. Yet, beside Adam, our sages tell us Eve was like a monkey. Eve was like a monkey beside Adam. Beside Adam's foot, our sages tell us, Eve was like a monkey. His foot shining brighter than the sun, brighter than a thousand suns, flash across the just-created sky, fish and burn, of which, though hidden, a single spark still burns in you. With its repetitions on the one side and surprising anachronistic details on the other, goth look, but she made it work, the poem balances its interests between scripture and humor. Not only is there a Talmudic precedent for the comparative formulations that Siskind favors, but you'll find a version of it in Heraclitus also. The wisest man, wrote Heraclitus, is an ape compared with God, just as the most beautiful ape is ugly compared with man. If one characteristic of American poets today is their willingness to let humor into their poems, the second poem I will read demonstrates that the narrative impulse remains very strong and is sometimes put to extraordinarily effective use, as in Denise Duhamel's poem, How It Will End, which is how my lecture will end. We're walking on the boardwalk, but stop when we see a lifeguard and his girlfriend fighting. We can't hear what they're saying, but it is as good as a movie. We sit on a bench to find out how it will end. I can tell by her body language he's done something really bad. She stands at the bottom of the ramp that leads to his hut. He tries to walk halfway down to meet her, but she keeps signaling, don't come closer. My husband says, boy, he's sure in for it. And I say, he deserves whatever's coming to him. My husband thinks the lifeguard's cheated, but I think she's sick of him only working part-time. Or maybe he forgot to put the rent in the mail. The lifeguard tries to reach out, and she holds out her hand like Diana Ross when she performed Stop in the Name of Love. The red flag that slaps against his station means strong currents. She has to just get it out of her system, my husband laughs, but I'm not laughing. I start to coach the girl to leave the no-good lifeguard, but my husband predicts she'll never leave. I'm angry at him for seeing glee in their situation and say, that's your problem. You think every fight is funny. You never take her seriously. And he says, you never even give the guy a chance, and you're always nagging. So how can he tell the real issues from the nitpicking? And I say, she doesn't nitpick. And he says, oh, really? Maybe he should start recording her tirades. And I say, maybe he should help out more. 
And he says, maybe she should be more supportive. And I say, do you mean supportive or do you mean support him? And my husband says that he's doing the best he can, that he's a lifeguard for Christ's sake. And I say that her job is much harder. She's a waitress who works nights carrying heavy trays and is hit on all the time by creepy tourists. And he just sits there most days napping and listening to Power 96. And then, ooh, he gets to be the big hero blowing his whistle and running into the water to save beach bunnies who flatter him. And my husband says, it's not as though she's Miss Innocence. And what about the way she flirts, giving free refills when her boss isn't looking or cutting extra large pieces of pie to get bigger tips. Oh no, she wouldn't do that because she's a saint and he's the devil. And I say, I don't know why you, what you can't just admit he's a jerk. And my husband says, I don't know why you can't admit she's a killjoy. And then out of the blue, the couple is making up. <laughs> the red flag flutters, then hangs limp. She has her arms around his neck and is crying into his shoulder. He whisks her up into his hut. We look around, but no one is watching us. <laughs> and that is Denise's poem. Thank you very much for being such good listeners. I, I, I hope you could hear. Thank you. Thank you.